What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and in the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior to get control of your thought processes, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are, guys, in episode number 24. And in last week's episode, I was going over the, what was it again? Oh yes, we were talking about buying from abroad. So you're based abroad and you're trying to buy back home. Some of the issues that you're gonna come across and things you need to look out for. And then I also went on a bit of a climate change rant having just watched David Attenborough's uh, latest show on Netflix. Something that I think we should all watch because it's one of those things that um, it's not going away, guys. Climate change is here to stay and it's going to impact every single one of us. So this week, I'm going to go into two different things. I got a great uh, question of the week and uh, so I'm going to get into that shortly. And I also have a... um, So this is going to be a busy week for me. I actually have a couple of conferences coming up and I'm going to be talking about the workplace and specifically where the whether the office is going to disappear into the mists of time or whether we're going to be stuck with it. And um, I'm sure you can guess where my thinking is on all that. I'm going to just give you guys a very quick update. The Behind the Facade community is now 230 members. That is the location where I do an awful lot of kind of interaction with members. So if you guys have any questions, you want to cover specific topics, you want to reach out and connect with me directly, then I suggest you go to Facebook and look up Behind the Facade community. And um, if you join there, usually ask you a few questions on uh, just your experience, just so as I have an an idea who uh, is in the group. So um, I wanted to just give a quick shout out to, um, I'm going to use his review name that he used, Dave Alvo. Now, I recognize that name as one of our members in the group. And so, Dave, just wanted to thank you for your review. Uh, I just read it and uh, I see that I'm the first podcast you listen to on a Monday morning. So thanks a million for the review, buddy. I am very appreciative of that. And if there's anything I can do for you, please reach out to me through the group. So getting the week off to the great start, that's why I actually chose Monday morning at sort of 6 a.m. as the time to launch because it's all about getting the week off to a good start. And it's all about the attitude that you bring to it. And I am I'm all for keeping a positive attitude. And something that I try to practice every now and then, I have a little routine I go through and I, I write in a journal and I do some um, meditation. Well, I try to do some meditation. I don't always get into the into it. But um, one thing that is very, very useful to do just from a mindset point of view is to kind of express gratitude for the various things that you have in your life. And I know that can sound a little bit kooky and um, quirky, but it's actually something that we all need to remind ourselves. And I'm going to tell you about something that I've found out in the last couple of days that's really quite powerful and it's going to challenge you and um, you know you think you have problems you think you're dealing with struggles and strains in your life and things like that and then you come across the story that I'm going to tell you today and you suddenly realize wow you know I actually don't have any problems at all you know the bank's chasing me for this and that and whatever it might be actually means nothing when you read this story so 
I'm going to put a link in the description below if you're if you're looking at this on um, YouTube or if you're looking at the podcast should be in the show notes below a link to this thing called the Walk Des Home Appeal. And Des is actually he's a good friend of mine, but I didn't realize how badly injured he was. And um, he used to work here in in East Point and he ran the, the food market that we had here. It was very, very popular. Every Wednesday we would have this Wednesday market and it's where the guys set up the stalls and you have all the different cuisine, you know, the different parts of the world and they and they have their tents and they sell the food to the people. And it was super popular here in East Point before COVID shut it down. And so I haven't seen them around for a long time. And so, you know, I just kind of assumed I'll go and see everyone when they come back. But then I found out that Des actually was in a horrendous bicycle accident. And um, now this was a very positive, very charismatic, fun loving guy, always out and about, often talking about his latest bike. And this um, this bicycle accident that he had in a bicycle lane, wearing a bicycle helmet, has left him in a coma for months. And uh, he, he recently, well, he, a few, I don't know exactly the timing on it, but he opened his eyes re- recently only to discover that that is all he can do. He can only open and close his eyes. And um, I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine the situation. We've all been going through lockdown and COVID and all this kind of stuff. And we all think, I'm sure like me, you guys have had reason to complain about it and, uh, you know, this is so annoying having to go through all this. But imagine going through what this poor guy, Des, is going through at the moment. And he's in the National Rehabilitation Hospital. He was unable to have visitors because of COVID. And then um, they, 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 his wife was worried about bringing the kids in because he had had to. The, the trauma to his head was so great that they had to remove a, size, a significant chunk of his skull. And they just felt that the children wouldn't be able to cope with that um, image. And so they didn't see him for quite a long time. And this was affecting his uh, his mood, as you can imagine. Um, it wasn't good in the first place, but just being able to see his kids anyway brightened him up. So the family have launched this appeal to try to raise money in order to kind of repurpose their house, I guess, so that they can actually bring him home so he doesn't need all of the the, the the rehab equipment that they have in these big hospitals and um, you know I've gone and donated to it you guys don't know you don't know Des so you know it's it's a different story for you guys but if you have any sort of um, charitable kind of thoughts uh, I would certainly think that this is one that warrants maybe giving it some consideration and just um, helping the guy out uh, so that he can get back home to be around his kids and um it's just from my point of view, apart from the fact that he's a friend of mine and I'd like to see him kind of um, sorted out as best as possible. It just shows you that no matter how many, you know, the difficulties you're going through, nothing actually has any comparison to what other people are going through out there. So just stop complaining and just realize how great you have it. And so anyway, look, I'm going to change gears now and um, brighten things up a little bit. So um, let's get through to the question of the week. So this week's question comes from, let's just call this person Charlie. And they came, they left me a note. And uh, I'm actually quite interested in this question because it is a bit of a quandary that the person faces. And it's, they have this, found this place that they want to buy. 
and it's an extremely good price. So the cash flow looks really, really positive. And they wanted to put in a bid and lo and behold, it got snapped up by somebody else before they had an opportunity. So they thought that that was gone, but lo and behold, it has actually come back on the market and they're thinking, oh, wow, here's now let's go and do this. And they found out subsequently that there is no fire certificate with this building uh, or with this property. And so they're wondering, should they buy or not? The price is so good, it seems like a steal, but there is no fire certificate. And they're wondering, what should they do? So first thing I was going to say is, well, depending, obviously, you know, we have listeners from all around the world here. And so fire certificates may mean different things in different countries, but we've all we all know what we're talking about. Fire safety is a very serious thing. And depending on the municipality you live, you're going to have fire officers that can shut buildings down if they're not happy about what they see and things like that. So first, the thing you should remember is that if something ever looks too good to be true, usually it is too good to be true. And uh, that's something that I've learned the hard way in the past. And I would always say beware of the dreaded no brainer deal because I've been burned so many times buying properties that I thought looked like a great steal. And I kind of overlooked the fact that there was some niggling issue. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you were literally unable to sell this property. And um, I mean, it's great if you're able to rent it and it's providing you with a good return. That is all good. Um, I won't kind of complain on that. But if you're not able to sell the property when you want to sell it, that can be a bit problematic. The next thing to remember is that fire safety is an area that changes over time, no matter where you're based. And, you know, depending on what happens, usually it is driven by some sort of a tragedy. Here in Ireland, we had a thing called the Stardust disaster back in the 1980s. And there was a it was a nightclub that the the guys that ran the nightclub were trying to prevent people from letting their friends in for free. So they put chains around the fire escape doors so that people wouldn't open the fire escape doors. And sure enough, something caught fire. And I think there was something like 40 or 50 people um, died of um, smoke inhalation and all sorts of stuff. So it was an absolute tragedy. I think 70 or 80 people were injured, but, you know, dozens died from from smoke inhalation. And it was something that kind of shocked the nation at the time. I can remember I was actually very young because this is way, way back. But I do remember being on television every night. Then when I was living in Qatar, I was in, there was a shopping center in Qatar that I used to frequent and there was a fire there and the fire spread and it went down this corridor and there was a children's crash there and they had no escape in the children's crash. They, the, there was only one way into this children's crash, no way back out. And the fire went down there. And so lots of tiny little kids actually died in that uh, tragedy. And I can remember feeling so kind of upset about it because, you know, these innocent young kids, um, you know, what an awful thing. And that just shows you is that, you know, fire safety is just something that, it you know, things happen. And then suddenly there's this massive shift to kind of, first of all, who's to blame? And then it's try to kind of create policies and all that kind of stuff to try to rectify the situation. In London then, uh, not so long ago, we had the Grenfell disaster, and that is the, the fire uh, in the building. I think it was 14 stories high or whatever, and 
a lot of people in the upper floors were actually advised to stay in their apartment rather than running down the fire escape and they all died in this huge inferno and so it is very uh, when you actually take you know some time to think about it it's a very very important thing and it's actually something that i went and did after the grenfell disaster i actually did a course in fire safety and i it was actually taught by the former um, city fire officer here in dublin and this guy had 40 years of expertise and he could tell you, uh, you know, pretty much everything that was going on around the, the disaster. And he was actually able to show me photographs of, you know, things that had happened in Grenfell and stuff, because these guys all share their information so that they know how to prevent it from happening in the future. So super knowledgeable guy. And I certainly recommend you spend some time learning about fire safety just so that you can figure out, you know, where it is possible to improve things and sometimes you can actually just see stuff that somebody else can't see because you've studied it before. A few years ago I was running a car parking business here in Dublin and I had no idea and then we were we were hosting event, an event on the roof and a fire officer who was actually employed by the event manager came in. So he wasn't the actual fire officer but he was acting as if he was a fire officer, just from the point of view of making sure the place was ready. And he came into my office and he started asking me for, you know, the, the fire safety documents. So I gave him the stuff and he was going through it and saying, this is all like massively out of date and you're supposed to fill this in every day and you're supposed to do this. And you're supposed I had no clue about all this stuff. Then we went around inspecting the you know fire extinguishers in the building. A lot of them were out of date. Um, then there was all this kind of stuff that we stored at the bottom of our staircase. Turns out that that's a you know big no-no. And he just he basically went through the building with me, showing me bits and pieces. For example, there is um, when you open a door into a fire escape, you'll often find that it has these brushes in the door so that it kind of seals the door shut. That's called an intumescent strip. And if you go and have a look at your intumescent strip in your buildings that you're living in, any kind of fire escape, you'll see it's this black strip that runs down the middle that kind of seals the door. In, a, in the event of a fire, when heat builds up, that actually expands to completely seal the door so that the fire can't travel through. And there's all sorts of stuff like that, but that stuff can become damaged and that allows fire to spread. And there are things like a one hour fire door and a two hour fire door. And the whole idea of these things is that they can actually hold a, an inferno back for up to two hours before it starts to spread further, which gives people an opportunity to get out of a building. And if there is damage or if these things are compromised in any way, then it can get through the door much, much quicker. And anyway, all of this stuff is stuff that I learned because I was in this course. And then there's other stuff like fire emergency uh, lights, you know, in a corridor, there's all these lights. They're supposed to be tested every three months and you have to be able to provide certificates to show that they've been tested. So this is stuff that when you're oblivious to it, you just kind of go through the world with your eyes closed. As soon as you're involved in managing property in any sense, you're going to need to know this stuff because a fire officer can come in and can literally shut you down and just say, you know, right, that's it. Building's now closed. Everyone's to go home and it's not going to reopen until you get all of this stuff sorted out. And so understanding that it's obviously going to be important from protecting your investment. That's the first thing. But 
more importantly, you don't want to ever find yourself criminally liable or criminally negligent for some sort of a tragedy that took place because you were oblivious to all this kind of stuff. Now, having said all that, there are huge opportunities in you know, finding uh, properties that have not been properly completed in terms of fire certs and stuff. So getting back to Charlie's question, there's there's actually a lot to be said for finding property if you're able to fix it up yourself. And that is something that you need to kind of look into in a little bit more detail. A friend of mine back in 2012 asked me to come and look at a property with him. And it was it was a really interesting opportunity. This was just after the the crash, the the financial crash, and there was a there was a builder that was building this block of apartments, and they built it sort of ninety, we'll say ninety five percent complete, and when they got as far as ninety five percent, the market crashed, and they ran out of money, and they went bust, and so this receiver was appointed. Um, a receiver, an examiner, a liquidator, whatever you want to call it, whatever part of the world you're in. And they took over this building and I think it was 70 or 80 apartments, nice apartments in a well-to-do area. And the 95% complete, but not complete to the point where they had their fire certificate and they had their occupational kind of the ability to occupy the building. And so they, the receiver was putting it on the market for sale Take it as you as you leave it. No assurances whatsoever from the receiver. It's a buyer beware situation. So my friend and I looked at it and we I actually got my my old project manager who used to work for me. I got him involved and he went in and he really knew his stuff when it come to all that kind of thing. And he went through it. And anyway, in the end of the day, my friend put in a bid for somewhere between six and seven million. I don't remember the exact figure for sort of 70 or 80 apartments the the exact numbers are not clear i can't remember now at this stage it's probably eight years ago now but less than a hundred thousand per unit in an area where three to four hundred thousand per unit is quite a normal price and he went in he inspected it climbed up into the roof space he understood what needed to be done and brought bought the property got control of it and then employed a construction manager to directly administer the contract and to direct subcontractors to fix up and do all the various things that had to be done to get the building up and running. And in the end of the day, I think it took, you know, six months to do, and they spent about two million on the building. Um, I think it was somewhere between 1.5 and 1.7, something like that. I can't remember exactly. But they completed the building, they got the fire cert, they rented it out, so they had this incredible cash flow now. And a couple of years later, they hung on to it for three or four years later, and then they put it on the market for sale. And sure enough, this was a good area, and they had now 70 or 80 pristine apartments in the area, all rented to um, families and things like that. So this was a one one payment they were looking for a big investor like a pension fund or something like that along came one and paid 27 million to them for this building and so there's your profit straight away you know in the region of 20 million profit on an investment of six or seven uh, plus the two million they spent on the construction so it just shows you what's possible when you're able to go in and get a bargain and just take on that risk that nobody else can, you know, maybe has the appetite for. And I mean, there was a big risk there that you go in and 
you spend two million and you haven't quite done it yet, uh, you still need to go on and spend more and more and more. And that's the risk. And that's where another person has asked me a question recently about construction and how can we learn more about construction? And this is something that I'm going to go into in a separate podcast because it's really, really important to kind of understand the construction process and how do you go about it. Um, but if you're able to get in there, if you're able, if you know your stuff, if you kind of understand the construction process, you can figure out a lot of the things that need to be done and you don't need to go off and hire, you know, teams of people. Although sometimes it's important to bring in the specialists when you, when you don't have the answers. The next thing you got to figure out, Charlie, answering your question is you need to figure out what's the reason now, specifically in relation to your property, what is the reason for there not being a fire certificate? It's usually a basic requirement and the developer would know this from the outset. So for it not to be there is unusual and you have to wonder what exactly has been done to not warrant a, a fire certificate. It could be, it's, it is unusual. And here in Ireland, there is a case of a building complex. I won't mention the name, but a friend of mine actually lives in this complex. And it is it, it was built by a bill by a contractor who was also the developer. And I think this guy, certainly there's accusations that he was a bit of a cowboy and he built it in a way that he, he shouldn't have. And he put it on the market for sale, claimed that it had fire certificates and all the various things that should have been there. And it didn't have any of this. And so he put it on the market, sold it. A load of people came in, bought apartments. And then they found out that there was no safety, uh, fire safety. There was no separation to keep the building, the fire from spreading from one apartment to the other. There was all of these real basic things. And so the city fire officer went in and closed down the building. It doesn't matter that you're renting an apartment there, that that's your home. It doesn't matter that you are the owner of the property and that is your investment. You had to move out. You had to go and find another place to live while they shut the building down. And then after a couple of months, they sent in a team of specialists to go and renovate this building and put in all of the missing pieces that were required in order to get it up to standard spec. And this cost a couple of million. And then they decided that they'd have to pass this on to the owners. So there was all these issues. And I mean, I don't know the exact details in that particular case, but I think it would be worth your while to go and just dig, try to dig into the history of the property that you're looking at. Try to figure out what's caused this. Is this something that you can rectify yourself and get your fire certificate? Or is this like the entire building is impacted? Is it something that's actually in the construction? Or is it, you know, it could be, there are fires, you know, there are fire consultants out there that you can hire to come in and just walk it through the building and, and identify why it's failing and then go and rectify that. And if it's, in, you know, if it's inexpensive and you can rectify it, great. Going ahead and buying it without the fire certificate, even if it has good cash flow, you run the risk of potentially the building being shut down on you and you having no choice but to basically have to find your tenant and, and move them to somewhere else. You also might find that you cannot insure the building or you cannot borrow against it. Now, in Charlie's case, they actually have cash to buy and which is a great position to be in. 
but your future purchaser, if you ever decide to sell this property, your future purchaser may not have that uh, ability and they may be requiring bank debt in order to purchase it and they might not get the bank debt because there's no fire cert. So all of these things can throw a bit of a spanner in the works. The main thing is figure out can it be rectified? Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's inherent in the construction and uh, and that's something. I'll give you a quick example. This is actually going slightly off the topic, but about 2002, I was involved in an apartment building and we went into the, um, the architect and I were chatting about putting in this cork floor surface. And the reason that you put in cork on the floors is so that there is no, um, so that vibrate, the vibration, the noise and the vibration from, from, you know, high heels or whatever, don't get passed down through the concrete slab and bother the people in the floor below. So I can remember we talking to the architect and him saying, well, you know, we're, we're the thickness of the floor, the concrete is so much that the sound deadening is inherent in it. And so you don't need to put in the cork. And I was like, you know, but is it, you know, what is it going to cost us to put in the cork? And I think it was seven grand or something like that to put in the cork. And I remember thinking, you know, let's go ahead and put in the cork. And in the end, the client just said, no, if we don't need to spend seven grand, we're not spending seven grand. The architect says, it's fine. Let's just proceed as we are. So we did that. And then along came the city council and they brought in a sound engineer and a sound engineer set up this little device that measures the noise between apartments. And he said, nope, sorry, it has failed the, the noise transmission standard. And therefore, it's not going to get the uh, you're not going to get your whatever it is, the completion certificate that you require. And so we had already rented the apartments at this stage and uh, we were trying to rent some of them. We were trying to sell others. And suddenly we had to go in and we had to tell all of the tenants that you're going to have to move to another part of the building. We're going to have to go into your apartment. We're going to have to hack up all of the tiles on the floor in the kitchen and the carpets and everything. And we're going to have to go and put down cork underneath this all. And then we're going to have to retile it and recarpet it and do all of this stuff whilst you're in another part of the building because it's going to take a few days. Naturally enough, the tenants were not too happy. They went back into their apartments a few days later and dust everywhere because of all the hacking up of floors and stuff. I mean, total nightmare. And this was all because we decided that, you know, oh, sounds like we don't need this. But once something is inherent in the construction, it's very, very hard to rectify it. And, you know, without having to do all of this stuff and the cost can be very prohibitive. In the end, I think we had to spend, I think like 30,000 rectifying this problem. That would have only cost seven grand if we had done it at the very beginning. So very um, unpleasant experience thankfully i was not the client there <laughs> and uh, i don't think the client was too happy with the architect in the end the next topic i'm going to talk about today is actually we i, I mentioned it earlier two separate we have two separate conferences coming up this week i'm actually speaking on monday so if you're listening to this on monday morning dave you're going to know that in the afternoon at about 6.30, I'm speaking at a, uh, on an online forum. And it's, uh, it's a thing with Brendan Quinn events. And it's, it's an event that normally would be in London, but everything is online, online nowadays. And we're talking about the workplace and specifically whether the office is coming back. So anyone who wants to um, participate in that, 
I'm going to put a link in the show notes. But remember, this is actually the event is taking place on the same day that the podcast goes live. So if you're listening to this a day later or any time later in the week, it's not going to be relevant. Um, however, I am also speaking at a conference on Wednesday afternoon, I think about seven o'clock, and I'll put a link to that as well. And it's a similar topic, but it's like a keynote I'm doing, I think, 40 minutes of a talk, and then we're going to have a Q&A. And it's all going to be around the workplace and what has COVID done to the way people think about the office and the work and commercial offices. And so in the build up to this, I've actually been having a lot of discussions with the occupiers here in East Point because we have about 50 different occupiers and I'm very interested to know how they're all faring with COVID-19, what their plans are, what their motivation is around their, you know, their, their plans for the coming back to the office or are they going to come back to the office? All of these things are very relevant. And I thought I'd just go into some of the things that I've spotted over the last couple of years. First of all, the, the motivation for having a big office. You know, with, with these big corporates, it's all about you know, corporate identity. And it's about the big, the big thing that these guys are very interested in is recruiting and retaining good talent. And so there's a whole thing about having a cool office um, there's that whole loyalty and corporate culture that they can kind of create in a very cool office and you can have social areas where people interact and things like that. That was all the rage pre-COVID. Then along came COVID. And what has COVID taught us? It's that you can work from home. Um, people who work from home don't have long commutes. They can often be more productive because they're working in a quiet area. Now, that isn't always the case because obviously people who are sharing a house or if two people, you know, two parties in, in a couple, if both uh, partners are working, then, you know, both of you sitting around the kitchen table is not necessarily going to be that productive. But there's a huge amount of freedom that people have enjoyed and um, productivity has been maintained in many respects. I've been speaking to different guys and they have KPIs that their clients expect uh, to meet. And as far as they're concerned, this is all being met. So they're quite pleased with how things have worked. So in a sense, you know, you don't need the office. It has been proven. But I am reading other things that I think it's JP Morgan in London has found that their productivity has suffered. And another thing that I've been reading is that the likes of Facebook and Google and all of these big, huge corporate, um, you know, tech companies, they have a lot of innovation and collaboration and it just is not working over these Zoom calls the way it would in a meeting room or in kind of a conference space. There is a, there's an energy in face-to-face -face meetings and I'm sure you guys will all recognize, I mean, one of the reasons why you know, people go on a date is because there's an energy in a face-to-face -face interaction. You get to see people's reactions. There's a whole lot of extra information that you get. And I think, I can't remember exactly what it is, but something like 50 or 60% of communication is actually the body language that you're projecting. It's not just what's coming out of your mouth in terms of text or in terms of words. And so the actual ability to meet somebody and to interact and to collaborate with them is much, much more effective in a face to face situation. And so for that reason, I do think what's going to be happening soon is offices are going to be repurposed. And 
it's going to be less of the rows and rows of desks because people can work from home now. And so I expect that people will probably work two or three days a week. And when they're working at home, they can get all of that quiet time concentration work done. And then when they come into the office, they will come in, they'll commute in, they'll have to kind of face the traffic and all that kind of stuff. But they'll be coming in for a social experience that will make them kind of feel like the the loyalty and the culture in the office is good. They're meeting their friends, they're collaborating, they're kind of there's an energy there that they'll feel kind of good about. And I think that is all something that you cannot um, you cannot, you know, fake over Zoom now. We'll have to remain, remains to be seen whether technology is going to catch up with this and actually make that kind of stuff possible. I know when I was working in some of the big banks um, on a project in Dubai, they had a thing, I think, I think it was called a halo room. And a halo room was a meeting room where you had the table running into the wall and then you had this huge TV screen. And on the other side of that TV screen was the ex- was a mirror image of your image. And so you had a desk and somewhere in the world there was people sitting at a desk similar to what you were sitting at. So it looked like one big long conference table. But in fact, half the conference table was where you were. The other half that you were looking at through the screen was somewhere else in the world. And it actually works like as if you're in the same room with the same people. You hear all of the sounds. The, it's like an 8K camera or something like that. So you, you, you feel as if these people are real. And um, I can remember they did a sound test when I was there and they opened a bottle of fizzy water and you could actually hear the bubbles on the edge of the glass, um, you know, popping and things like that, the way you would hear if you're listening to a glass up close. So that is perhaps the way things are going to go in the future. And meetings, uh, virtual meetings will actually be something that can be done. Um, But at the moment, we're all staring at a little laptop screen. It's not quite the same. Some of the cons of missing out um, in an office are that you you're actually if you're not going to an office, this is particularly the case in, say, big legal firms and places. You have got a huge amount of knowledge and expertise sitting inside of people that are there like senior managers and things like that. And young recruits, when they come in to work for these guys, they actually learn a huge amount just from overhearing phone calls, from being in the room when the other person is dealing with somebody. All of that stuff, you kind of learn it through osmosis. And that is something that you're losing when you're working from home because you don't have that interactivity. The other thing obviously is corporate culture. Um, That is something, the social aspect has gone out. I know, you know, some of the, the big companies that are here in this business park, they spend a huge amount of money on very big spaces that are kind of um, meeting spaces, uh, town hall meeting kind of spaces. They also have gyms and they have uh, yoga rooms and things like that. All of that is very cool. But and so you're going to miss that, obviously, if you're at home. And so I think they're going to want to bring people back from home because if you're working from home for months and months, it can become a bit monotonous and you might start getting a little bit bored with your job. And so as part of the whole recruitment and retention that these guys are talking about and they're so fixated on, I do think that that is something that is, um, it's of paramount importance. One little anecdote to finish on 
is I, I met with a bathroom supplier who's doing some work for me here in the park. And he does, I think he was saying that he does about 10 bathrooms a week through his business. And he says his average turnover is somewhere between 100 and 150,000 a week. And uh, he was saying that as soon as lockdown was finished, he said he saw a spike and their, their turnover jumped to about 250 grand um, for a couple of weeks after that. And that was the pent up demand. And so many people working from home, they were all fed up with their their toilets and things like that. So they all wanted to renovate them and to refurbish them. But one of the things that was interesting, so with all of the hundreds of clients that he sees, he would see, you know, 500 clients a year by the sounds of it. And he said that of all the people that he saw, about 80% of them all could not wait to get back to the office. They were fed up working from home. And so that's an interesting just little anecdote. Um, I think it probably is very much generational based. I think a certain age group prefers to work from home or prefers the flexibility at least and then a different uh, cohort would look for different things to finish up i thought i would just mention some of the trends that i'm seeing because of covid and it is actually around the area of transport and micro mobility i have been looking at um in fact this week i'm going to be speaking to the ceo and founder of a um of a bike sharing business here in Dublin. In fact, I'm actually reaching out to two different guys and they've been explaining to me their business. And what I am seeing here is that nobody wants to take public transport any longer. And so for obvious reasons with COVID-19 and stuff. And so bikes and e-bikes and scooters have all shot up in popularity. And I've heard that um, a bike shop that I'm aware of, they have seen their sales increase 500% this year on last year, and they have orders through till like the middle of June next year. And it's completely unprecedented for them. So we're also seeing here in the city of Dublin, they're building bike lanes. They're actually taking two lane, you know, roads that would normally have cars on them. And they're actually taking one of the lanes out and they're going to make it one way for a certain for for the car traffic and they're going to make a two lane bike highway on the other lane and that is the way things are kind of moving and so i'm going to be having an interesting conversation next week um and i'll probably put it on the podcast uh, in a week or two on micro mobility and some of the opportunities that i see and finally just wanted to mention i'm working on securing two new guests for the podcast and I think you're going to find these guys super interesting. The first guest is based, actually, they're both based in the US. The first guest is based in the US and he's a venture capitalist and he's involved in a business that is involved in um, prop tech. So real estate, technology, innovation, all that stuff. So we're going to have a great conversation with him, which I think you'll all find very interesting. And then my second guest, who's going to come on a subsequent podcast, is a guy, an Irish guy. I know him very well. And he built up a business here in Ireland and sold it for 100 million. And then he moved to the US and he's after doing it again. He has built up his business in a, in a similar field and it's all around construction, innovation and things like that. And he's actually building his business even bigger in the US. And I think he's probably going to do it again in terms of making a ton of money. 
and very smart guy. And I'm going to bring him on the podcast in a couple of weeks time to tell us his story and give some advice. So I hope you have enjoyed the podcast, guys. Um, that is it for episode 24 of Behind the Facade. Please check out the show notes. As I mentioned, the various website links are going to be there below. Thank you for listening. My number one ask to you and following in Dave Alvo's great footsteps, I'd ask you all to please leave a review. Stop what you're doing and just scroll down to the bottom and then put in a review. If you can just put in something like that, it really helps us get the awareness out there for the podcast. Also, if you would like to reach out and ask a question or if you would like to suggest a topic to be covered in future podcasts, be sure to join the Facebook group Behind the Facade community. And I'm in there every week. I leave, I put in live videos, I answer questions, I do all that kind of stuff. So I'm very interactive with the people that are members in there. And lastly, if you want to learn about more about me, please sign up to my newsletter by visiting my website. That's www.gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. And that'll bring you straight to the newsletter page where you can put in your address and it'll just mean that I don't spam. I can assure you, you're not going to get any spam. Um, I just, I like to have people's emails so I can reach out to them with something in the future. So guys, I'm wishing you a great week. Um, it's early Monday. If it's early Monday morning or if it's the end of the week, whatever time you're listening to this, have a good one and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.